I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in the series, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion. If faithfulness is the rebellious movement to which we are called, what is the code of faithfulness by which we live? What, practically speaking, makes us any different? And how do we live these things out in a consistent, meaningful way that shapes us and the world around us? Full disclosure, uh, sometime around Thursday night, I have, my voice was kind of raspy at that time, but uh, we were in the midst of a, a rousing game of Dungeons and & Dragons, and uh, as the DM, you have to talk a lot, and by the end of the game, or, or that night of the game anyway, uh, no sound came out anymore. It was just like air, and then I couldn't talk at all for a couple days, uh, and you know, here, I learned this about laryngitis. Apparently, there's no scientific evidence whatsoever that things like tea and honey help your voice come back at all. The only thing that helps is being quiet for several days, which is what I've done. In fact, this is the first time I've talked loud (laughs) since it happened, so we'll see if it holds up. If not, Cam will come up here and read the rest of my notes, I guess, (laughs) but we'll see. We're actually entering the final stretch now of our annual vision series, which is the time If you're new, when we every year sort of circle up and revisit the core attributes of this particular church and why we're here and what we're doing and where we hope to go, God willing, in the weeks and months ahead, this year, reclaiming faithfulness as an act of rebellion. Now, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to revisit one way that we can bring everything that we've been talking about together, not just the last few weeks, but really the last year of our church Um, together in one practical way. And then finally, to end, we will talk about how the Spirit of God will see us through all of that. It's been a weird few years for everyone. And Christians are no exception. But really, it's always been a few weird years. It's always been this way. Open the Bible's epic narrative, and on page one, it's pretty good. You get God's infinite creative love and incredible artistry, and it is good. It is good. It is very good. But then you turn the page, and everything gets screwed up right away. It is now, as it was in the very beginning, as soon as people enter the picture, if those people have a choice between good and evil, they will eventually choose evil. Or put it another way, given the choice between what's best for everyone and what I want, even if it's at the expense of other people or at the expense of all of creation, I will eventually choose what I want at the expense of others. For more on this, see all of human history. And when people choose evil, those people, other people, society, creation itself, all experience the disastrous consequences of that selfishness. Happens all throughout the Bible, throughout ancient empires, throughout the Crusades and Manifest Destiny and American slavery and world wars and the Holocaust and the Cold War, the war on drugs, war in Iraq, war on culture, war on Christmas. The human project is busted, in other words, and you're in it by the way. Depending on where you're sitting, it can look uniquely terrible from one season to another. For Protestant Christians in America in 2022, it can feel as if things have begun to break down in a significant way. It feels like it's been happening for a while now, and now things are really coming off the rails, as if everyone is bailing out, as if the quasi-progressivism of affluent white millennials and podcasters and social media influencers have revealed the writing on the wall. 
the Christian movement has been deconstructed. We've stripped it for parts. All that's left are sad, desperate, religious political zealots clinging to their last vestiges of power. Get over it. Move on. We have. It can feel that way, but it just isn't an accurate picture of the ancient movement to which we belong. In reports published earlier this year by Dr. Gina Zerlo, who's a, a historian, a sociologist, and a demographer, demonstrated that her research indicates that 67% of the world's Christians live in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and Oceania. The largest share of those live in Africa, and the majority of them are women. And the median age of Christians in sub-Saharan Africa is just 19. Turns out the average Christian isn't American or male or well-off or millennial at all. The average Christian, it turns out, is a teenage girl in Nigeria. And because of this, Professor A.J. Swoboda in his excellent book, After Doubt, which we have for sale on our book table along with the rest of the recommended reading for this series, he argues that for every millennial affluent white college student who is choosing to deconstruct their Christian faith, there are five non-white people with less privilege in this world who are finding in the Bible the greatest message one could ever imagine. We, that is Christians, are still here. The historic apostolic orthodox movement of Jesus, the Bible, the worldview of the apostles, the early church, all of it, not only continues to grow, but continues to thrive all over the world. Where we're sitting right now, things can seem bleak, but they aren't. Not really. The world is broken. That much is clear. It has been for a long time. But the kingdom of God is still coming, just like Jesus promised it would. So the question we're asking this year as we forge a way forward once again is about faithfulness. How do we continue in faithfulness over and against the rest of the world that feels as if it's breaking down? It's easy to read and to say that the global church is thriving and, oh, we're part of it. But here, right now, it can often feel really small. We don't conduct our lives in Africa and in Latin America and so on. And for many of you, there is a gravitational pull away from all of this, if ever so subtle. The lure to either be kind of half in and half out while you evaluate your options, don't commit. The lure to other stories. Is the way of Jesus really best for human beings in 2022? Will I be dismissed as stupid, as a right-wing zealot, or an anti-science homophobe? Church, really? Now, like this, in a sanctuary with worship songs and all that stuff? Or sure, you know, I'm a Christian. I just don't believe, you know, the Bible. Or at least not certain parts of it. The parts I don't like. Or sure, I like Jesus. Yeah, it's not all of him. Not everything he says. So how do we stay grounded, not only in what we believe, but stay grounded and unified with the global Christian movement now and for the last 2,000 years? How do we truly reclaim faithfulness as an act of rebellion against the status quo that is our everyday lives and the wallpaper of all that we do? So let's go to Jesus for the answer and read from John chapter 15, one of our favorite scriptures in all of Van City history. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for what we believe are the inspired, authoritative scriptures? Let's read John 15, beginning with verse 1. Jesus himself says, I am the true vine. 
My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And now everyone look up here and let's all read verse 8 out loud together. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. These words are inspired by God. Thank you guys. Take a seat. Now, throughout that teaching, the word that my Bible's translating as remain or abide in uh, some of your Bibles is the Greek word meno, and it can be translated as stay united with me. See, in ancient Greek, there's no italics or no capital letters or underlining. So if you want to emphasize something, you'd repeat it. In this short teaching, Jesus says, Mino, or stay united with me, 10 times. With his execution before him at this point in the story, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, remember this. You have to remember this one thing. This is so important. Remain in me. Remain in me. Remain in me. 10 times in one short teaching. Now, Jesus is saying to them and to us, I am not merely a set of teachings. Jesus is saying, I'm not a, a system of belief. I'm not an ethic only. I'm a person. I am your teacher. And more than that, I'm your master and I am your friend. Stay with me. Don't wander off. Stay here. Stay with me. Stay where I am, connected to me in my teachings, in my world, in my way of life. And for centuries, writers and thinkers in the spiritual formation tradition have argued that therein lies the secret to spiritual formation. Live all of life from the presence of Jesus. Cultivate a moment-by-moment, day-by-day connectedness to the Spirit of God within you. And in doing so, access the presence of Jesus himself. Remain in him. Not in some kind of, you know, open to interpretation, you make it up sort of way, but in the time-tested methods taught and lived out by Jesus himself, handed down by the apostles, the early church, and the church mothers and fathers. Things like prayer, church, what you're doing right now, worship, fasting, community, the list goes on. When we do this, when we order our lives around these rhythms, we slowly become the people God wants us to be. We operate out of contentment rather than anxiety, out of joy rather than anger, out of hope rather than despair. It takes a while, and it's not a seamless process without setbacks, but the idea is that we go forward in our discipleship to Jesus. The presence of Jesus transforms us into the image of Jesus. But that doesn't just happen. We all live in a nonstop flow of information and digital noise overload. Push notifications and calendar events and TV streaming and social media, friends, spouses, kids, get-togethers, hangouts. It's not like we don't have options for things to do or for distractions, good or bad. We have more than we could ever possibly explore in any meaningful sense. And the thing is, we think of ourselves 
as travelers within a uniquely distracting futuristic dystopia. We think, oh, well, previous generations had the simple life, but not us. We're so distracted. And there's an element of truth to that, but the question of finding your footing with spiritual disciplines in the frenetic pace of life has been something that disciples of Jesus have been asking for centuries now. And the early church actually offered an answer, and it was called a rule of life. Let me show you just a few familiar passages and then pose a question few of us think to ask. Now look at this from Matthew's biography of Jesus. You know the story. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Go figure. Jesus, at a specific time and place in his life, upon the Spirit's leading, specifically says, decides to go into the desert for 40 days of both silence and solitude and fasting. That's obviously pretty Jesus-level stuff. And we know the Spirit led him, but we also know that Jesus was autonomous. The Bible teaches that he had a will, he had choices that he could make. He decided to follow the Spirit's leading. Why this time and these things? The story paints a very purposeful picture. It's not random. It's actually not spontaneous at all. The Matthew's gospel can be kind of succinct, so it reads as if, oh, one scene ends, and then out of nowhere, he just walks into the woods and stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. But he didn't that we know of, do the whole 40 days of fasting thing a lot. Other things he did do a lot. Remember this? News about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed by their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He often did that. It wasn't just a unique one-off 40 days of fasting stuff. Jesus often practiced silence and solitude. He prayed all the time alone in the company of other people. And that's not all. Jesus practiced community. He shared the gospel. He studied the scriptures. He attended synagogue. And when he was there, he actually participated, not randomly, not on the occasional whim. He ordered his life around what we now call spiritual disciplines. See, when we read the biographies of Jesus' life, they often play to the modern sensibility like a, a series of detached scenes. And we can forget that Jesus didn't just wander haphazardly from one unplanned event to another as if life sort of just happened to Jesus. He knew what he was doing. He chose when to pray, when to study, when to practice solitude or fasting or gratitude. He made space for community and for his work and for rest. He made deliberate decisions that enabled him to live simply and to prioritize relationships, especially those closest to him, to be alone and to be with other people, to have solitude and have celebration and party with others. And though neither he nor the authors of the New Testament named it this specifically, it seems abundantly clear that Jesus had what we now call a rule of life. This is a concept that was popularized by St. Benedict in the 4th century, but it may be even older than that. Benedict wrote out a very pragmatic guide to spiritual rhythms for each day, week, month, and year within his monastery, and he called it a rule of life. Now think again of the metaphor of the vine and the trellis. For a vine to grow well, it needs support of some kind, an infrastructure to guide and nurture it as it grows up and out. Without a trellis, the vine can grow, but it's sort of chaotic and more vulnerable to the elements, and it falls short of its potential. Thus, a trellis is much like a rule of life. Andy Crouch defines a rule of life as a set of practices to guard our habits and guide our lives. When a rule of life 
does what it's meant to do, three things start to happen. The first is that ideas become functional, ongoing practices. A rule of life enables us to transfer ideas like, you know, prayer or fasting or even broad concepts like the kingdom of God into the rhythm of the way we live, the, the muscle memory of our lives so that they don't become, oh, right, that thing that Josh talked about at church a while back, I mostly forgot about it already. But it's not just that. It's a way to bring the disciplines you learn into the unique season and rhythm of your life right now. It's a way to translate the disciplines into a formative rhythm for your life in your career or as a stay-at-home mom or as a student or as an empty nester or a new dad or whatever it is that you are and wherever it is that you're at. And when that happens, we can start to do the things that we actually want to do. There are things we want to do on a superficial level like eat, sleep, and be entertained. And then there are things that we want to do on a more personal level, like be productive or realize a dream that we have or be healthy or whatever. And then there are the things that we actually want to do on a deep soul level, like know God and be known by God and experience freedom from sin or addiction or whatever, or walk in the empowerment of the Spirit of God. The first tier comes really easy. The second tier, that's a bit more challenging but the third, for many of us, can at least at times seem elusive or far-fetched or outright impossible. And think about it this way. It sounds hyper-mystic or philosophical, but really everyone already gets this. For each of us, there are layers of genuine desire that rule the major and minor parts of our lives. The New Testament differentiates between kinds of desires by saying that some of those desires belong to the Spirit, and some of those desires belong to what the New Testament calls the flesh, which is sort of our broken, bent, primal desire. It may seem as if, you know, based on the way that we talk or behave and the things that we do, that we don't deeply desire the way of Jesus. But if you follow Jesus, you do. Deep down in your soul, you have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that is empowering and re-energizing your desires and your way of life. If you follow Jesus, you do want the things of Jesus. A rule of life can help us live in alignment with our deepest desires. It's actually pretty simple. The ordinary rhythm of life for most of us is set to keep us mired in the stagnation and superficial desire of the flesh, just at a default level. You keep a smartphone in your pocket. You can access streaming services with the push of a button. You orbit circles of gossip, or you pass a, a half dozen opportunities to objectify other human beings on a given day. Unless we deliberately rewire the spiritual rhythm of our lives then we will likely just soldier on in the default rhythm of our lives in a broken world. A rule of life can be the way we accomplish that rewiring and in doing so, finally get some peace. Peace, that is the way God means peace. Not just as in quiet and rest, but what the Hebrew authors of the Bible call shalom, which is a sense of contentment, a sense of closeness with God that we know what is right and good even in our broken, disheveled world. It's not perfect, obviously, a rule of life that is, but it is the quantifiable, the quantifiable rhythm of life that reminds us, oh, we're, we're doing it. We're learning. We're moving forward. Now, 
Here again, I know many of you, like me, I'm assuming, don't take kindly to rules. But hear me when I say this. You already have a rule of life. It's too late for that one. The ship has sailed. It's likely unwritten, maybe even subconscious at times, but there's always a rhythm and a routine to your life. The way you get up, the way that you work, when you sleep, what you do before sleep, and on what days, and how you spend your money, and the kinds of things you prioritize, and projects, family, phone, friends, all that. All of us have a rule of life. And as you'll see, the more we get into this, it's not like every item on your rule must be profoundly spiritual sounding. But ask yourself this. When you scan the archives of your mind and take a passing inventory of your life rhythms... Are they already aligned with the deepest desires of your heart? What you want most for your life or for your family, for your future, and for the kingdom of God? As we move into the weeks ahead and after we observe Advent together as a family, we are going to revisit the idea of a rule of life and even draft a Van City rule of life together as a family. And hear me, the idea is not to give you more work another thing to do. It's not to confine you. It's not to restrict you. The idea is actually and sincerely that we would have more freedom. Margaret Gunther, who's a wife and a mother and an Anglican priest, she says it well. She says, a good rule can set us free to be our true and best selves. It is a working document, a kind of spiritual budget, not carved in stone, but subject to regular review and revision. It should support us never constrict us. The idea is to look at your own personality, your own season of life, the person that Jesus has asked you to be, however well you understand that now or however little, and to establish for yourself adaptable rhythms that will enable and empower you to live and thrive as a disciple of Jesus. Now, I've been at this whole following Jesus thing for the better part of my life at this point. And like all of you, there have been ups and downs and seasons of intimacy and fruitfulness and season of detachment and drought and doubt. But the thing is, I'm not new to the spiritual discipline. Some of them, like, you know, getting up early in the morning to pray and read the Bible. I've been practicing, <coughs> pardon me, with varying degrees of faithfulness and lapses in faithfulness for many, many years at this point. I've fasted. I've done silence and solitude and scripture memorization and contemplative prayer and community. All these things have been a part of my life rhythm at some point or another. But what I found is that the disciplines that come naturally tend to implement with some degree of ease, relatively speaking, depending on your faithfulness to the church and community, accountability, all that. But the ones that are tricky, even if they're really good for you, I kind of learn them, work on them, then excuse them to the background until something reminds me that they exist. And then I'm like, oh yeah, geez, I should, I should fast, I guess. I haven't done it in a long time. And that's not all bad because you can't possibly do all things all the time. You can't have a rhythm that enables you to do every single spiritual discipline on a regular basis. But I found myself realizing from time to time that I was likely inhibiting my own growth by not creating practical recurring rhythms to practice things like generosity or rest or fasting or whatever it might be. Because the spiritual disciplines are all a means to an end. They are not the point God is, learning to live connected to God, to hear God, to walk with God, becoming who he has made you to be. 
And what I realized when I started this process years ago is that I already had a rule of life. I slept the same basic time frame most days. My mornings took the same basic shape, give or take. My work days and work habits and the way I approached projects and the time I spent with Abby and the kids, my friends. And I realized that Creating a new rule of life didn't mean cramming all kinds of new and extra things into what already felt like, at times, quite frankly, way too much. It was organizing what was already there so that I could have more freedom and experience more intimacy with the Spirit of God. Letting the stuff of no value go and replacing it with what I knew would do me good. And my discipleship, even though I'd been at it for years at this point, it radically changed when I first wrote my first rule of life years ago. And that rule has changed um, often throughout the years since then. But I, I don't mean to hype it. It's not an answer to every problem in your, in your discipleship. It is, like all the disciplines, it is a tool to use. But I do believe from my own personal experience that used well, it can be powerful and effective. So I, I want to suggest a few things to keep in mind throughout the process as we re-explore the idea of a rule of life as a church. The first is, if you're hearing this all for the first time or you've been around and you remember when we've talked about this before, um, start small. If you already have a rule of life or you need to revise a rule of life or you had one at one point but you don't have or you've never even heard of this before, start small. Getting amped up and writing out a rule of life with like two dozen things that you're not currently doing and, and that require a major life upheaval is a great way to break your rule of life before you start it. Start where you are, not where you want to be ultimately. And don't be discouraged by starting small. That's perfectly fine. Honestly, taking on small, realistic, even fun goals does move you forward in spiritual formation because we, we start to see what we're missing little by little, even with a little practice, that there's more, that we grow a little at a time when we practice. So if, you know, spending one or two hours in prayer and reading every single morning is where you'd like to be at some point in your life, but presently you're spirit spending zero seconds reading and praying in the morning, then start with just a few minutes at a time. When you wake up, before you touch your phone, say hello to God, read one psalm from the Hebrew scriptures, sit in God's presence for a minute or two before you start your day. Commit to doing that every single day for just the foreseeable future, for a month or two, and see what happens. And then later on, you might add more reading, or you might add different kinds of prayer. You might expand your time. But start small and be specific. <clears throat> Writing abstract concepts like be more generous or, you know, relax more won't go far in, you know, producing quantifiable outcomes. But writing something like, this month I'm going to give 10% of my income to my church and another percentage to this charitable cause that I believe in, that's specific. Or writing something like, I'm going to buy dinner for someone every single month. Or I'm going to take a day every single week to rest and pray and be in God's spirit and not work or shop or anything else. Or I'm going to turn off my phone for a full 24 hours once a week. Those are, those are specific quantifiable things. Next, Go for subtraction over addition. Don't cram more stuff into, into an already bloated routine. The idea will be to take an honest look at how you're spending your time now and then organize it wisely so that you can prioritize what's best. And that will likely mean cutting things out so that you can do more of the stuff that you know gives you life. To do that, 
you'll need to remember your season of life and your stage of apprenticeship. If you're 20-something and single, your rule will look very different from an empty nester. If you're raising three toddlers right now, your rule will look very different than someone with one newborn or two teenagers. If you're brand new to Jesus, this is a great time to take on the most simple basics. But if you've been following Jesus for decades, you may need a change to break out of stagnation and numbness and to take on something more sophisticated or something that you haven't done before. And when we're in similar seasons of life, we're still all very different. So remember your unique wiring and personality. If you connect with God in nature, go on hikes, I guess. Is the thing. <laughs> if you connect with God through art, then make time to read or watch films or listen to music. If time alone replenishes your soul, prioritize time alone. If time amongst friends does that, then schedule time amongst friends. But remember, you have to balance downstream practices with upstream practices, meaning we all have at least some spiritual disciplines that connect with our disposition in such a way that they come easy and they feel immediately rewarding. Others are harder to do, like swimming against the current, but they are still very important. So I love uh, imaginative prayer. I find it deeply uh, formative. It's been one of the most important spiritual disciplines for my life. Um, but honestly, fasting is hard. Uh, who, does, who likes fasting? <laughs> it's not the most thrilling thing to do. But I have found it to be uh, a, also a deeply formative practice for my soul. One thing I want to do, imaginative to prayer. Fasting, I don't ever think to myself, man, it'd be aw- I'm just going to fast for the heck of it tomorrow because it's fun. Community is still very important for self-proclaimed introverts, maybe even more so. And silence and solitude is still very important for those of us who prefer to be around people all the time. Once again, probably even more so. Worship is crucial, even if you feel funny singing Uh, And reading the Bible is crucial even if you're not a book person and you don't like to read that much. At the end of it all, a good rule of life is a tool, not a shackle. So the idea is not to just burden yourself with things that you just don't want to do, but to balance the things that come naturally and feel immediately rewarding with the things that are a little more difficult for you, but you know will do you good. You'll still be free to interrupt the rhythm when life demands it. Like I said, I've changed my rule of life over the years several times, and you can adapt with it as you grow and change. One thing I found in living into the rule that I'd written was that with more attention to certain prayer disciplines, my mind naturally began to gravitate to prayer in trivial moments of life. When I had made more specific, disciplined rhythms to pray in different ways throughout the week, I found it really easy and really naturally to just have my mind drift to God and talk to Him while I'm washing dishes or, you know, walking to my car after work or something like that. Um, I didn't push the urge to pray down and say, sorry, God, this is not the scheduled time. I wrote a rule and we stick with the rule. A good rule is structured, but it allows for spontaneity. It allows for revision. When you realize like, oh, I'm actually learning this thing and I like this thing, you might implement it differently. It's an ever evolving work in progress. And again, the rule is a means to an end. The end is not to follow the rule. It is to become someone who is more with Jesus more like Jesus, and more capable of doing the kinds of things Jesus did over time. There's no one design for a rule of life, but ordinarily, the categories unfold thusly, and these are the ones that I've used over the last several years. There's abiding, the mind, the body, relationships and sexuality, work and rest, money, and gospel and hospitality. 
Abiding is things like morning prayer. You know, it comes from that language from John 15 about remain in me, remain in me. Scripture reading, worship music, uh, the things like the daily office, which is a rhythmic time. Every day my watch beeps at two o'clock and I stop and pray with God, even if it's just for a few seconds. Um, Sabbath, fasting, silence and solitude, all those things are the abide category. The mind is things like reading the scripture in the morning, spiritual reading and studying, learning from a book or, uh, you know, a passage from the scriptures. Um, going to church on Sunday. Good job. You're doing that right now. Gratitude, a digital rule of life, which means mapping out the way you will and won't use devices for your spiritual formation. Um, things like a daily device limit or a weekly device limit and so on. There's the body, which is sleep and exercise and healthy diet and, you know, things like an annual doctor's visit. I had not been to the doctor in I don't know how many years. And the last thing to go on my rule of life was to establish primary care with a doctor. And when he's like, so what are you in here for? I was like, oh, you're the last thing on my rule of life. <laughs> I think he appreciated it. <clears throat> um, honoring God with your sexuality by living according to the teachings of Jesus, all those things in the body and sexuality. Relationships, which means, you know, honoring the people in your life for whom you share unique uh, intimacy and, pri and prioritizing those relationships, weekly phone calls or coffee with your best friend or a weekly meal with your community. A lot of you do that already. Um, prioritizing rhythms with your spouse if you're married, um, cultivating healthy sexual connections or for families, things like sitting down to dinner five nights a week, going on vacation together, whatever it might be for you. For work and rest, it's times of focused work without interruption. Uh, it could be dedicated time to some kind of project that you've been whittling away, um, sleeping, you know, the right amount of time every night for your body and your season. It could be, a, you know, a weekly Sabbath or a, a nothing night once, at least once a week or several times a week where you don't plan anything, you don't do anything, there's just nothing to do but be. Um, gospel and, oh, sorry, money is things like tithing, making a budget, simplicity, um, a you know, of fun to bless other people or sponsoring a kid, that kind of thing. Gospel and hospitality is inviting a friend to church or a regular night to host uh, neighbors for dinner or spending time listening to your coworkers or students serving the poor through volunteering at, you know, various charitable causes, that kind of thing. Now, maybe you're hearing all these and you're thinking, oh my God, my life is a disheveled mess, but I am not doing any one of those things. But chances are, there are already great things for a rule of life in your rhythm so if you, you're here, for example. So if you come to church, that's you, well done. That's part of an important, healthy rhythm of life. If you're in a community, that's huge. Um, if you pray with your kids at night, that's huge. If you have some rhythm for exercise, you like to jog or your family takes a vacation or you like to read books, oh, these are all great things that, can, that are already part of your rule of life that you can organize and implement exactly the way you think would be best for you. Before you have a functioning rule, you just try things out. You test a few disciplines in your season. You see if they fit or if they need adjustment, and you revise the rule along the way. Remember, you start small, but be specific, and then be prepared to erase a few things on week two and then week three. I'm not an organized person uh, by nature, uh, painfully unorganized, actually, but I live with the world's most organized person, so it all worked out for me. Um, <laughs> But organized or chaotic, we all have rhythms and we all need rhythms to follow Jesus well. Following Jesus doesn't just happen. Christ-likeness is not natural. It takes practice and dedication and discipline and a rule 
of life. And it seems to me that spiritual disciplines without a rule of life is a bit like, you know, learning the piano with no piano lessons. Can one learn the piano simply toying around with it and when the mood hits, coming and going, learning something here and there? Obviously, you can, probably. But it would probably be clumsy and it, or at least inefficient. And I don't think you would master the piano that way. But if you implemented lessons, advice, teaching into the rhythm and calendar of your life, if you dedicated to on these days, every day, whatever it is, for this much time, I practice the piano, I learn from a master. What if they said, this is how I will structure my life in dedication to learning the piano with a teacher. I will study alone on these nights at these times. I will structure my time to accommodate these things. Obviously, you see where I'm going with this. A rule of life is an attempt to arrange our days and years so that we actually experience a deep sense of life with God. So that it becomes more than something I talk about here on Sunday evenings or we all think about together and go, oh, that's right. But that we actually experience little by little as individuals, families, communities, and a family. A rule of life is the way that we find that ongoing sense of intimacy with God. Now, to end tonight, I just want to read over you from the prologue of St. Benedict's Rule from the 6th century. It's a wacky little book. You can read it on your own time if you want. It, it doesn't take very long. And there's some crazy stuff in it, as you might imagine, someone making a rule of life for a monastery in the 4th century. But there's also some beautiful things in it. He writes this. In drawing up its regulations, we hope to set down nothing harsh, nothing burdensome, the good of all concerned, however, may prompt us to a little strictness in order to amend faults and to safeguard love. Do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. It is bound to be narrow at the outset. But as we progress in this way of life and in faith, we shall run on the path of God's commandments. Our hearts overflowing with the inexpressible delight of love. Let me pray over us. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church give.